0: Hey everyone, it's Mary. Heading into the 2024 election,
1: you are gonna hear so much about hot button issues. You know the ones. Guns, abortion, trans kids, parental rights. But you know what you're not gonna hear, at least not enough? You're not gonna hear from the people most affected by those issues. So all this week, we are spotlighting their stories. Today, you're gonna hear from Greg Wickenkamp. He was a history teacher for years until Iowa banned teaching about divisive
2: topics. One student in particular, I remember, said, I I heard we can't learn about Black people this year.
1: Over the last couple of years, elected officials have passed roughly 240 measures that restrict teaching about race in America. And Greg's story shows that push is not going away anytime soon. All right, here's the show. I called up Greg Wickencamp to ask him to walk me through a very awkward Zoom call. Hi, Dr. Noel.
2: Oh, you might be muted there, I think.
1: Greg was working as an eighth grade social studies teacher in Fairfield, Iowa, when he recorded this conversation. And this Zoom was with his boss, the superintendent, who he'd been trying to speak with for months.
2: But I I was hoping to kind of run through... um, some things that have been concerning me for some time and and hopefully get some insights if that works for you.
1: Greg was hoping to talk about this new law that he was struggling to comply with, one of those bills that bans the discussion of quote-unquote divisive content. Greg wanted the district to be clear about what divisive content was. He tried emailing the district. That had not worked. He thought that fit a pattern at his school.
2: Um, similarly, flippant and, and seemingly gaslighting responses uh, are often made. Um, they
1: were made in November. Going into this meeting, things were coming to a head for Greg personally. There had been complaints about how he taught. He used Ibram X. Kendi's anti racist book, Stamped, from the beginning. The Indigenous People's History of the United States, too. So you wanted to meet with your superintendent just to be like, Do you have my back here? Like, I'm using these books. Like, are we good?
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: What did you anticipate would happen at this meeting?
2: I was unsure.
1: For half an hour, Greg spars with his boss over the minutiae of how he is being treated. She says she doesn't want to make a big stink about defending him because she thinks that could inflame some families more. And then, with just a few minutes until this meeting is set to expire... Greg asks this question this HFA, that it feels like he's been to itching to that. get out.
2: Um, you know, your stance and your support has sort of been to say, stick to the facts. Knowing that I should stick to the facts and knowing that to say slavery was wrong, that's not a fact. That's that's a stance. Is it right. acceptable for me to teach students that slavery was wrong?
1: I think it goes back to. um The part with critical race theory is that we can say this is what happened, and I and 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 again, you probably know more about it than I do, Greg. And I think that's and it's so interesting to watch that moment because the superintendent kind of filibusters for a minute. I don't know if it felt like that to you in the moment.
2: No, absolutely, that's a great word, and and it was um, fairly demoralizing
1: to say is slavery wrong. I really need to delve into it to see, is that part of what we can or cannot say? And I don't know that, Greg, because that's, I just don't have that. Um, This is when Greg's eyebrows shoot up and he puts his head in his hands.
2: Wow. Um, I'm sorry on that
1: part. You seem surprised by her response in the moment. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I I was somewhat surprised just because it was so blatantly sort of, Wishy washy, you know. It, I, I thought surely this will be a question that that can be answered uh, in the affirmative. Yes, of course, teach slavery was wrong. That's that's in fact partly why young people need to study history so we don't repeat mistakes of the past. And so I think it it really shows how how the political landscape has pushed schools and misshaped uh, the potential for for education.
1: I wanted to talk to Greg because we are in the middle of an ongoing fight about what we can and can't teach kids in American schools. The Florida legislature is considering a ban on discussing menstruation with elementary kids. And a teacher like Greg, he seems so gently reasonable, asking, what are we doing here and why? When you hung up the line, what did you do? Did you like have a
2: drink? I was sort of despondent I I immediately called uh, a couple friends and, and, you know, whoever would pick up the phone got got to have an earful and then when they had had enough, you know, I called the next friend and I was sort of in shock, you know, um, teaching is something I've tried to dedicate my life to in many ways. Thankfully, I have a very wonderful network of of support to which I was able to turn. Those folks all all sort of said what I, I needed to hear and that was like, you're not crazy, the situation is crazy. And it's disappointing and sad.
1: Today on the show, what can and can't be taught in school these days? And what happened when one teacher tried to find out? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. SAP.
0: You taught eighth grade,
1: right?
2: I did. In that district, I taught eighth grade social studies.
1: Why? Like, it's such a Why?
2: hard age. <laughs> it is.
1: Kids are so, Why? they're in this transition, right? Right. What did you like about teaching adolescents?
2: I really enjoy it, in part because you can have the sort of silly fun that you might have in an elementary school classroom, the play, learning through play. But then you can also start to go a little deeper and content. The students at that age are really developing. Their sense of self, and they're able to also look sort of at the world in more broad ways than they than they might have been as younger people. And so, I really, really enjoyed working with students to to try to help them think critically and broaden their sense of self and broaden what might be possible uh, in the world and and through their lives. And and seeing the students uh, learn at that age is is really exciting.
1: Describe your school and community. Like, how big was the school and and the community that it drew from?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's Fairfield is a very interesting community. It's a rural Iowa community. Uh, I saw roughly a hundred students for a little less each year, but a really interesting and rich uh, town with uh, with good restaurants for rural Iowa.
1: <laughs> what did it mean to teach social studies there? Like, what kind of subjects were you covering in eighth grade?
2: Yeah, we we covered the whole gamut: economics, geography, really. History uh, was was kind of the major focus. Um, but just social sciences generally. And and really through that, my my intention uh, was to always inspire critical thinking and people who who could then engage as citizens in a democracy, actively engage.
1: One of the books Greg thought did a good job of inspiring critical thinking was that Ibram X. Kendi book, Stamped from the Beginning. It explores the history of racism in the U.S., but it also pops up with some regularity on anti-critical race theory book ban lists.
2: I think it's just a really remarkable book, and I, and I think uh, especially the youth adaptation uh, by Jason Reynolds, I think is 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 both provocative, but also deeply grounded in in scholarship, and also accessible for young people.
1: What did you want your students to take from it?
2: Yeah, I wanted them to start to think critically about race, which is often something, um, especially in Iowa and the Midwest that people are hesitant to explore in, in any critical way.
1: Yeah, were they open to that?
2: Many students were. And many students in, I think, especially after 2016 and then again after 2020, were sort of hungry for an a deeper understanding because that that was lacking generally in K-12 education for many students.
1: When the students weren't open to it, what did that look like?
2: Yeah you, you know what was always interesting is uh Oftentimes when I would start a unit or lesson, the first day students would be incredibly engaged. And then after perhaps uh, visiting with their families or something, they they might occasionally uh, bring back these sort of biases against the the particular content. So one student, for example, I can't remember if it was in that particular district or a prior one, we were reading an Indigenous People's History youth edition. And um, after a few days, he he emailed me or... Talked to me and said, you know, I, I'm not going to read any more of this. <laughs> um, it just doesn't jive with with my opinion. I, I really believe that blue lives matter, and this text uh, really is more of a Black Lives Matter thing, and and that's not for me. Which I thought was really strange and and sort of a sad commentary on on where we're at in society, because the text itself certainly addresses uh, race and colonization and and U.S. history, but it doesn't do so from a partisan way.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you were feeling these rumblings in the classroom. When did things shift in terms of what you were allowed to teach legally?
2: Yeah, that, that was in the summer of 2021. Iowa was one of the first amongst many states to pass
0: these sort of anti-CRT laws. As of July 1st, teachers won't be able to teach that the United States or the state of Iowa is fundamentally or systemically racist. They're also barred from race scapegoating and race stereotyping and from creating discomfort or guilt because of one's race. Joining me now to discuss
2: this. And so that's when things really started to shift dramatically and, and um pushback became even more emboldened. So I, I immediately sent a letter to the school board saying, hey, this law has passed. I'm really looking for support as I have been for the last year about what's teach and whether the district will support that. And so I I outlined, you know, uh, maybe five or so steps that opportunities really that the district could take to sort of get ahead of any pushback that that might result from the law. So you're
1: basically like, let's get ready for this.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Did you get any response when you sent that letter?
2: The the response I got was was curious. Um, I got an email then from the superintendent who it felt in the email to me like she was sort of admonishing me for. Going above her and not going directly to her, and then she sort of popped into my class early that fall uh, while I was teaching, which I thought was odd. Whoa! And she said, "Hey, uh, I just want you to know, just stick to the facts, and you'll be fine." Which didn't really address uh, any of my concerns or or the letter that I had written, but uh, sort of set the path for for the level of support that I received.
1: Huh? So she's like coming to you, like, "Listen, just chill."
2: Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> and you're
1: like, that's not possible for me right now.
2: Right. Yeah. And and it wasn't because I was confused about the law, which is very vague in Iowa, like many of these laws. And it wasn't because I was confused about what best teaching practices were. It was because I was concerned that the district uh, wouldn't be supportive if tensions ramped up.
1: So I know this law it passed over the summer. So I imagine you were planning your curriculum, getting ready to go back to the classroom. Once you got back to school, what was going on? Like, were, were other teachers talking about this law? Were the students?
2: Yeah, they, they were. Um, in the fall, uh, when I was sort of outlining the class for students, uh, one student in particular I remember said, I, I heard we can't learn about Black people this year, which, which was really striking. Um, Oof. yeah, because the law is vague enough in Iowa that there's all these sort of misinterpretations or, or maybe that's part of the purpose of the law, actually. So what did you say to that student? I said, well, we are learning U.S. history. So of course, we will be learning about people of all races. And not only that, but we'll be explicitly exploring race since it is so central to U.S. history, past and present.
1: Did that calm the classroom down or or was there more murmuring after?
2: It did a little. Um, I, I, of course, was unsettled by that and emailed that. That was one of the many emails that I then sent off to, to administration saying, you know, here's what's going on in the classroom. Wanted you to be aware of it. Hopefully we can be a little more proactive in getting ahead of this.
1: Hmm. Were your colleagues, other teachers, were they doing what you were doing? Sort of saying like, no, no, of course we're going to be talking about race. This is really important for you to Learn as like a framework for understanding the country
2: to varying degrees. Um, there there were some who really didn't want that level of pushback and and so decided that they would just abandon any any deep exploration of race, class, or gender. Others um, sort of said, well, i'll I'll do this, but I'll sort of try to walk the fine line that that doesn't draw more attention to myself from those who might want to unfairly uh, impugn my practice.
1: At one point, a local state legislator singled you out at a public forum, and I don't think he used your name, but he identified you enough that it was clear who you were. He basically said you were ignoring state law by using, Ibram Kendi's "Stamped from the Beginning" in your social studies class. What happened there?
2: Yeah, that that was um, very challenging. His appeal was really to sort of a QAnon type crowd. And so I was very wary of this politician already. And so when he started singling me out very publicly, that, that was incredibly worrisome. You know, he, he, he said in a public forum that what I was doing was indoctrinating students, teaching them to hate America, to hate white people. I was breaking the law. Uh, and this was all news to me. Um, you know, I, I, I had not received any sort of uh, direct pushback from the district or, or any politicians about my curriculum. And I would have welcomed a conversation, but it was clear that what he was doing was scapegoating um, my practice. And and he was unrelenting uh, about that.
1: Were people like telling you about these forums, like saying like, oh, I heard that guy again talking about you?
2: Yeah, it was really weighing heavily on me um, because I I was already in a situation where I I was unsure whether the district would be supportive. You know, uh, while this was going on, we were being asked to uh, misgender students and and do things that I thought were were harmful, um that I know are harmful for students. And so I was already sort of trying to advocate for students in those ways. And so, when I caught the public attention of this of this politician, it was scary. I remember the weekend after the first uh, public forum, the union president called me and and said she had heard about what had happened and and said, "You know, we're here for you. Uh, Keep protecting yourself, you know, lock your doors. And, and if things get too scary, don't hesitate to call 911. That, that was sort of the level of, of fear that I was having.
1: Yeah. This is all background for that meeting you eventually had with your superintendent, the one where she clearly is unclear about whether you can say slavery is wrong. Right. After that meeting, my understanding is that the district did try to support you a bit but what happened there?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, that was really interesting. Uh, another school board member who happened to teach social studies in a neighboring district, he he was sort of curious about how I was teaching and what I was teaching. And so we, we reviewed that. And sadly, his guidance was sort of that I, I should sort of both sides um, controversial events or give space to not just the north union uh during the civil war and the build-up to it but space to the confederacy and not in a way that that necessarily said well obviously the the confederacy was was an error uh but but to say well some people thought this and other people thought that and and he applied this example also to the holocaust saying you know we we want to share that many people believed the holocaust was wrong but you also want to say uh here's why uh some german people embraced it and and so. Reflecting on that, I, I followed up with an email. I said, "You know, the, these are eighth grade students, and that would be a real disservice to to these young people. Of course, we want them to form their own judgments, and of course, we want to present uh, a broad variety of perspectives. But to sort of imagine that we should or could be neutral on these issues like slavery or the Holocaust is really to the detriment of young people."
1: When we come back, how the fight over what can and can't be discussed in school expanded over the last year.
0: Today
2: in the Middle East, happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening around AI.
1: Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. In the latest season of Blindspot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen—mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers—all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind spot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You quit your job at the end of the year last year.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't renew my contract. Yeah.
1: How did you come to that decision? You sound like you love teaching, like talking to you, like you're a teacher. You just are a teacher in how you speak.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was a really hard decision um, to, to walk away from K-12 and, and to recognize that perhaps uh, Iowa is a challenging place to teach for, for justice or teach for critical thinking was was really, really hard. You know, teaching is something that I thought long about before entering. And thought that that is what I would do until I retire in some way or another. And so, to not to not renew my contract was was really really um, a hard thing.
1: Many proponents of laws restricting what's taught in schools, what they say is that children can't grapple with racism; that teaching white kids about racism will make them hate themselves; that teaching not white kids about racism will make them hate white kids, or even feel bad about themselves as well. You taught kids for more than a decade. In your experience, was that true?
2: No, no, not at all. I mean, whether you're explicitly teaching about race or not, you're teaching about race because it's it's such a fundamental thing to the United States and, and the world. And, and so I think to remain silent on it just allows whatever prejudices are floating out there namely white supremacy to be adopted uh, by many students to their detriment or, or there's for example the sort of doll test where students are asked to to identify amongst a, a black and white doll which is beautiful and which is good and which is bad and and these are like elementary students who are already reflecting sort of uh racial prejudices and white supremacy and these tests have been repeated and repeated and so I think you know if students are are young enough to reflect, the The white supremacy of of society. They're old enough to to learn about it.
1: One of the most interesting things about those doll tests is that they found that black children also preferred the white doll, right. And I think that's so important because part of what I think people misunderstand about an academic like Ibram Kendi is they they frame his viewpoints as teaching that white people are bad because they have these beliefs about black people. When in reality, what he's teaching is that we all swim in a like racism soup and we're all absorbing these ideas. And so it impacts all of us. And it's like a subtle distinction, but so important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, are we are we talking about white people or or whiteness generally, you know, the sort of the sort of prejudice that attaches itself to race. And and I think that because uh, as a society, many of us don't fully understand that, people become defensive.
1: In the months since you left the classroom, politicians in Iowa have only widened their attacks on public schools in many different ways. In addition to race, there's now a lot of talk about gender and sexuality. Your governor gave this speech where she was sort of characterizing people opposed to her administration. She's a quite conservative Republican. The way she put it was, you know, they think patriotism is racist and pornographic library books are education. They believe that the content of our character is less important than the color of our skin. They believe children should be encouraged to pick their gender and for the parents, well, they're just in the way. Well, we I wonder how you some hear something like that. Because it sounds like what you started seeing in twenty twenty, it's only kind of metastasizing.
2: Yes. Yeah. No, it's only growing. And it's and it's scary and it's sad, I think. And I think it reflects this sort of narrow view of what the US is and can be, and this narrow view of patriotism. And so I think if we really want to live to our highest ideals, we owe it to students to to teach them to think critically about these things.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the years since you left the classroom, Iowa legislators have banned gender-affirming care for trans youth. The House has passed a bill that would prohibit the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through sixth grade. There's a bill that limits bathroom use in schools to quote-unquote biological sex. There's curriculum... Measures that remove the requirement to teach students about HIV, and that's just awaiting the governor's signature. If you were back in the classroom now, would you be able to have the kind of open conversations you want to have with kids?
2: That's a really great question. I don't. I don't know. I think it would depend on on the district, how supportive they were of of all the students, how they interpreted these laws, um, and and I think we're approaching a time when supporting students in these ways is is becoming illegal. And and I know um, people with, with trans kids who, who are considering leaving the state just because of that, because they want their students to grow up in a safe and supportive environment, which Iowa is becoming less and less.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you think about your state differently now. And I ask that because I think people may have forgotten that Iowa was like the third state to legalize same-sex marriage. Yeah. It was the state Supreme Court that did it, not the legislature. And this was 2009.
2: Right. Sure. No, I- Iowa has, has a longer tradition of really uh, progressive, inclusive politics going way back. Um, and so I think that this recent turn is a dangerous direction for Iowans in a lot of ways. Um, we're seeing it reflected in a variety of ways. Like like the brain drain has talked about a lot um, there was a, a Iowa State professor who who just shared that that in his 20 or 25 years of teaching, he would often ask his his senior uh, economics uh, students how many plan to stay in Iowa, and and it was always relatively few, and and I think that's that's really sad, especially because Iowa has long been known for having great schools and education, um, and now we are not. I'm actually having lunch today with with a colleague who who um, quit after death threats and and another who who felt sort of forced out for advocating around uh, issues of diversity uh, for students. and And so, oh my gosh. Yeah, I think there there are a, a number of teachers who who are firmly committed and able to carry on in the classroom and do really good and thoughtful work. And I also know uh, handfuls of teachers who who have not been able to continue to do that.
1: Greg, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I'm really grateful.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: Greg Wickencamp is a PhD student at the University of Iowa. Until last year, he was an eighth grade social studies teacher for the Fairfield Community School District in rural Iowa. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to show us some love is to join Slate Plus, which is our membership program. To find out more, go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus. You can sign up right there. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of help these days from Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here tomorrow.